Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 24, Exploring Magic and Permaculture with Gordon White. Gordon White blogs and podcasts at runesoup.com, if you're unaware. He also is an author, a permaculturist, and a magician. In this episode, we have a really wonderful conversation with Gordon about what magic is, about what animism is, about some other worldviews, why materialism is such a terrible worldview, how he got into permaculture, how he saved his farm by summoning a dragon, and what he's working on now. I hope you enjoy the episode, and also, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash plantcunning and become one of our first patrons. Okay, welcome Gordon White to the Plant Cunning Podcast. We are, we are so honored to have you here today. Well, I'm honored to be invited. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. So I would love to just start, um, get right into it. And I'm, I'm curious how you first got into magic. Oh, um, honestly, the whatever it was, there was a some kind of clear and important dream experience that happened around the age of 13. And I sort of sat bolt upright one Saturday morning as a 13-year-old and aware that something significant had happened and walked down the hill about three or so, three or four miles to a independent bookstore in my hometown of Newcastle where I was growing up back when things like independent bookstores existed, <laughs> uh, which and it was excellent, by the way. I was very fortunate to live somewhere where the, um, um, I still remember her, Sue, the woman who owned it, mm. knew every book in the store and what everyone would want. And, oh, wow. And so on. She was a, an amazing woman. I'm talking about it like she's dead. It's just that the store is closed. <laughs> Sue is <Yeah>. still alive. <laughs> um, the world is over. And <laughs> and I walked in because I was uh, refereeing soccer at the time. So I had money. Um, I had, you know, big money for a 13 year old. And, uh, <laughs> and I asked Sue, I sort of went up to the mind, body, spirit section and had a brief chat to Sue and picked up some fairly uh, uh, simple books. Like that. I'm quite sure I got a Cunningham book in my first haul. Right. Yeah. And then I took them to, the nearby grandstand and bought a pack of cigarettes on the way. Cause again, 13 um, and, and sat there and smoked a few cigarettes and read these books. And, and that was, that was the beginning of the intellectual journey with magic as people who get involved with these sort of things subsequently, which is why I asked the weird kid question on my show, right. subsequently find out that actually a whole bunch of stuff typically happened to them even younger than that before they have words for it and so on. But that was my, uh, that was the official beginning. Something happened in dreams that meant I had to, I got up that day, walked down, bought some books and have not stopped buying books. Ah, yeah. And where was this? Where did you grow up? Newcastle, Australia. So it's about two hours north of Sydney. Hmm. Yeah. 
So cigarettes and Scott Cunningham is the initiation <laughs> for you. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something definitely. It wasn't just, I think I also got a, a Pete Carroll book. Mm. So I, I wasn't sure where I was going to land, but that was sort of very early on. I got, it would have been um, Liber Chaos or Liber Nolan Psychonaut, but I got one in one of those early halls because it, you, as you know, as is typically typically the case, you get hooked and you um, you keep buying them and, and so on. I'm not quite sure, but there was definitely a Wicker book in there and a might have even been book of druidry and a chaos magic book so chaos magic way back then was uh was getting was a big influence for you when it felt like coming home uh it felt especially as i went through because in a funny way it kind of suits being a teenager because Uh, the um it's position around authority figures and authoritative voices and truth and so on is sort of exactly the thing you want to hear as you're developmentally reaching milestones of independence and, and forming your own opinions, which hopefully change as you get even older, but around politics and, and activism and metaphysics and truth and all those kind of really horrible things that you bore your friends with uh, in at, at teenage parties and so it really felt like chaos magic it it still feels like um what i'd been looking for the whole time mm. so can you describe to our listeners just briefly what is magic in general and then what is chaos magic specifically sure so it's it's culturally bound so i've been thinking about this for years i've said and it's not that this is wrong that magic is a culture-specific way of understanding and experiencing um, things that we would call psi phenomena. So um, spirit contact, telepathy, all of these natural capacities that humans have, which in the last 300 years or so in the West, we've pretended don't exist along with a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, And that's true. So that's sort of like a that's a good way of understanding what magic is, which is a, this umbrella term for natural human capacities that we pretend aren't there. But the trouble with that is if you go sideways to other cultures, it does start to break down because it you, you find less of the pretending it's not there in them. So if you're amongst New Guinean tribes people or um, what have you, whilst you will have a, a clever man or a shaman or, or whatever, depending on the um, group you're in, what what he or she is called, um, everyone does something that we would consider to be magic, uh, and and but it's just normal. And I think the most famous example is uh, Aboriginal Australia is still to this day highly telepathic. Uh, and there was a guy he wrote a Hay House book um, about healing his MS using um, Aboriginal techniques uh, in the 90s called Gary Schwartz. And when he first got to this remote tribe. He thought they were, he said, like, this is really bad, but I thought they were all dumb because they were all just sitting there silently, like under a tree or what have you. And he's, as he began to learn dreaming skills, he first of all realized, well, in fact, they're in the dreaming, but also if they need to talk to each other, they do it telepathically. So we struggle uh, and go through all these sort of psi results and, and experimental protocols and, and what have you to just get this little blink or flash of an idea that humans are telepathic, because indeed we are. Um, but if you go into Aboriginal Australia, that's just how they talk, right? <laughs> I mean, they do still talk, but that means, is that magic at that point? We would call it magic if I can communicate with you telepathically. But when my mother, for instance, was out doing Aboriginal um, sort of women's ritual and ceremony stuff about 15 years ago, the day 
before they arrived, an elder had died. And so there was going to be a um, funeral in the next day or so. And that night out of the desert, all these women showed up and they were a three-day walk away. And they had arrived for the funeral um, of a person who hadn't yet died. Um, but if they didn't leave before she died, they wouldn't get to go to the funeral. And so is that magic, right? Um, or is it, are, are we in this situation of... Uh, almost making it too exotic. Um, for us, it is experienced as exotic, but the, my definition of it being a term we use for natural capacities that humans have that we ignore kind of really only works for us. Right. Mm. So what you're saying is that a, a lot of what we consider to be magic or is only because in Western culture, we have ignored all of these things or, and repressed them. With the yeah, stuff. and it's ignored is better than repressed because we literally just made fiat declarations over the last three centuries that it's not true. So sort of beginning with Descartes and then moving through the Enlightenment, we make we've made some we have some pretty bold takes that yeah. are frankly crap um, to do with theory of mind and the livingness of of the more than human world and so on, and we just declare nope. It's all just some sort of really, um, really complex machine, like the like God built, you know, a, a pocket watch, famously, right? Right. Uh, and, and but there's no evidence for that. That's a take. And in fact, we don't experience the universe that way. So yeah. our understanding of the word magic is not just from those three centuries, but mm-hmm. we have we we live in uh, under the or in the long shadow of cultures that. Um, kept it at arm's length, like not just Christianity. Christianity, in fact, inherited many of its anti-magic laws from the Roman Empire. The Romans weren't a fan of it because they were aware of how powerful it could be. So they didn't like, uh, other than official people doing things like astrology, they weren't necessarily fans of it. And so those early anti-magic laws on the the books that we blame the Christians for, they they inherited. So it messed with their monopoly on power exactly exactly so we 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 hold magic at arm's length well we are downstream from cultures that held magic at arm's length not because they didn't think it was real (laughs) they knew it was yeah it's like it's just gonna mess with the politics a bit right but so whenever we look at all the other cultures and we say folk magic to them that's just part of life it's just it's just like yeah that's it's you use the f word that i don't like um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for that reason, yeah. uh, that yeah. adds not just what I was saying, that it's sort of very um, Eurocentric to talk about magic the way I define it. Um, but also when you add the folk component, you get classism and you get an urban rural. Because um, folk customs is this sort of similar 18th century invention where um, waistcoated Englishmen would leave London and go out into Somerset looking for some sort of um, bucolic um, but simple wisdom that those of those clever people in the cities don't have. So, and we keep using these terms like they don't have yeah. um, stink on them, but they do have stink on them. And, and that's <laughs> something um, Dame Marilyn Strahan um, says, it matters what thoughts we think other thoughts with. Mm. So um, it, it's very uh, transformative to one's own thinkings and doings to kind of realize, and it's not necessarily our fault, but the, um, the frameworks we've inherited just aren't up to the task of um, showing up to our own experience and having our own experience be in the right kind of comparison on a planetary basis. You mentioned that your mom was also a part of ritual. So is that another part of your upbringing? Was magic a part of your family tradition as well? Uh, 
so that's a kind of weird round the houses one. Um, when I started getting more into witchcraft in my teenage years and was reading things like um, Janet and Stuart Farrow's Witch's Bible and so on, because on mother's side, the family comes from Ireland on the second fleet down to Australia. Uh, and there were some Irish charms in there that she said, my grandmother used to say them. Uh-huh. And so there's, there's a, and we looked at sort of, I find this stuff boring, but she doesn't like the family tree stuff uh, back through there. And there is apparently some sort of, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say a cunning tradition, but there was a reputation associated with women along that line mm-hmm. about this kind of stuff. Um, I didn't grow up with it. And this is where it sort of stops and starts, right? So before my mother got married, she was an English teacher in regional Australia and lived in a haunted house and did all those really 70s things like automatic writing and and so on. So she was on her own journey, then got married and had kids. Mm-hmm. So less time for automatic writing uh, um, amongst other things. And so there's this sort of 15 year gap where yeah. she raised three kids, <laughs> right? And then went back to it. And now she is an energy healer um, and, and does that not full time, but because they're retired now, but does that professionally and, and has been all over the world in, in those kind of ceremonial things. So my interest is clearly along that line, but I wasn't raised in a, uh, in a family lineage. But you also weren't raised in a lineage that repressed or ignored um, the the magical side of things. Oh, yeah. Well, my father, he's retired as well, but is a psychiatrist. So it's an unusual combination. So I I sort of have, uh, I I don't think I would be, and I don't think rune soup would be what it was had that not been uh, two two conduits or, or two routes that sort of filled the well. Yeah, you have to have a little bit to rebel against, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I used to joke, this is another teenage thing. Um, I used to joke that I could beat a lie detector because when my father was working, he would he was a Supreme Court expert witness for um, if, if people were like, you know, making claims of, oh, madness, I don't remember killing all those people or whatever it happens to be. He would officially declare whether they were lying or not. So he was a professional lie detector at a Supreme Court level. Um, and if I wanted to get away with things like underage drinking and smoking, I had to pass the lie detector. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, you got a lot of good practice there. <laughs> well, it turns out he just wasn't paying that much attention to it. So <laughs> I, I thought my skills were better than they were. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So we've been reading your book, um, Starships, and it's been really interesting. I like it a lot. One of the things that we've been thinking is interesting is this um difference between grandfather line and grandmother line do you think you Mm -hmm. can go into that a little bit sure so that's uh that comes from dr witzel's schema um which i thought uh, i found very very useful in in putting the world's mythologies in i think a a more coherent way of um comparison because historically to, to, to answer that i have to say historically uh, European academia has not been good at that. And that, that sort of flows on into anthropology and history and, and so on, where there is an assumption of a, of a march of progress where cultures are understood as being at different points on a line of development that will end up with them looking like European culture. Uh, that's kind of how we did it for the first 150 years. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if you look at the early attempts at understanding uh, Vedic cosmologies or 
um, sub-Saharan African cosmologies, they're in this idea that it's like, well, these ones are primitive and these ones are a little bit less primitive, but they're still not as good as ours and, mm-hmm. and so on. And that is just trash. But what Witzel managed to do, and he uh, he's retired, but he was a Harvard Indologist. So he spent most of his career looking at ancient India and so on. And he kind of noticed that there are motifs all over the world that look the same. And we also have a reasonable understanding, although it doesn't actually speak to where humans originate from technically, but we can use mitochondrial DNA analysis to get a broad shape of the movement of humans once they leave Africa around the world. Um, There's still, because mitochondrial DNA is, is quite mutative, um, there's a lot of give in it. And I'm talking like a 20,000 year give so that the the DNA suggests that people have only been in, say, South America for 18,000 years, but there's archaeological evidence and paintings and things that are 30 plus thousand years. So there's right. big gaps in it. But nevertheless, if you look at the snake motifs in South America, and then you look at the snake motifs in India and Southeast Asia and so on, you can make a family tree of mythological motifs Mm. that map back to mankind's sort of journey around the world. Because if you find, if you find snake motifs that look broadly similar in areas where say 30,000 years ago, the ancestors of the South Americans, North Americans and Japan lived in island Southeast Asia, then you can kind of say, well, they probably had, a snake cosmology 30,000 years ago in Southeast Asia, right. right? And so that's broadly speaking, Witchell's schema, which I use in starships. Now, having done that, and that would be a grandfather line, and he's referring to official cosmologies versus unofficial cosmologies. Mm-hmm. The official ones are easier to track, which is the sort of state gods, um, the, the ones that you're supposed to believe in because the king or the shaman or, or whatever said. But, but praxis and beliefs that are on the grandmother line, which is, again, it's poetic, but I think it's kind of the right way of saying it, which is the stuff that you learn in the nursery. Um, so it's the, the ancient beliefs that are considered politically unimportant that can survive because they're passed down um, a child rearing line. Uh, and so, I mean, Tolkien famously referred to um, nursery tales and, and sort of fairy tales as um, the attic or the, the furniture in the nursery, because in, in an English house in the early 20th century, furniture begins in say the living room or the dining room um, when it's nice. And then when you update that, you have this leftover furniture and it moves to another room. So a spare room or so on. And then eventually it ends up in what we would call the kid's playroom where it can be knocked around because it is considered useless. Yeah. And that's the grandmother line. So that stories, and one of the ones Witzel found that is probably 100,000 years old is this idea of a stork bringing a baby um, yeah. to, to earth because there, is, there are beliefs of birds bringing a new human from a well of souls mm-hmm. um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so, and because it's universally attested, he's like, that actually might be 100,000 years old. And we've kept it on our march around the planet hmm. because it's politically useless to to the grandfather line like it doesn't say anything about who has a right to rule or any of that stuff it's real grandmother wisdom and it's really it's really beautiful to sit with the idea that we've been telling the same story for a hundred thousand years yeah that is so cool so the grandfather line is more like the academic kind of if you look at and i mean obviously 
you know, spirits are real, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't, so I don't want to tip directly into uh, a more Marxist analysis of saying, well, you know, religion is a bunch of made up stories we tell to justify political power. Um, religion contains stories that are used to justify political power, but they have a, but mythology is a kind of hyperdimensionally true thing. So the grandfather's stories are the ones that are told to support a power structure within a culture or a society. So a king right. or, or a public or a republic or so on. And they change, right? Because, mm -hmm. and they, they have changed. So if you look at, um, again, going back to the Roman empire, um, the emperors were the children of Mars, right? Or they were, or, or Venus, or whoever. They would have a divine lineage from the um, Roman pantheon, uh, and then once you get the Christian conversion, you have Holy Roman emperors and popes, and so on. And so the the story changes, but what the story has to do, which is justify a power structure, remains the same. So that's the grandfather stuff, mm -hmm. and underneath that, or beside that as um, politically irrelevant, it doesn't, there's nothing about where a baby's soul comes from that can be used to run a kingdom. Yeah. So it can, <laughs> yeah. can stay a lot longer, like a hundred thousand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So cool. one of the other little uh, anecdotes that you told in the beginning of Starships was the story about the knife that um, it's been in the, in the family for years, for generations. And a couple times the handle has been changed and, and fixed and the, a couple times the the blade has been replaced but it's the same knife right so um how how is magic now the same as it was twenty thousand years ago that's a really cool question um because it's fulfilling and just on a functional analysis because it's fulfilling the same um operational requirements so we, uh, let's take new age beliefs of the late 20th century, for instance, and their narrativizing around it is very quantum theory based, right? Uh, but they're using that, whether that's true or not, and, and it's one of the worst places to go to find um, a decent understanding of physics, uh, but whether it's true or not, they're using that as a framework to understand, let's go back to something like telepathy. Um, that so there's a that's a knife that is that's been replaced so the handle would, might be spirits uh, and the blade might be that a human is permanently embedded in the spirit world even when he or she is on earth uh, and by the time you get to the late 20th century the it's the handle is I don't know blah blah quantum and and the knife is we're all kind of at a spooky action at a distance um, relationship, yeah. but it's still the same knife. <laughs> it's still telepathy. And, and that's very challenging for people to find. And I don't mean because the uh, historians aren't good at it, but the way we do history in uh, a European culture is very text-based mm -hmm. uh, and it's how we validate truth. So we have to look for, if there's a word here, it has to have come from somewhere else. But if the word is uh, that's, so you're actually tra tracking the physical components of a knife then, which means you'll lose the story or you won't think it's as, as large as it is because you can only go as far back as the last knife handle, right? Right. Yeah, but the form, uh, the idea exactly. is much older. Yeah. Cool. So um, it, you talk a lot about animism. You're a big proponent of animism. Um I was, I think it's always good to like define our terms and get back to basics. So 
do you think you could go, get into a little bit into what animism is or am and uh, how is it different than other magical worldviews and how is it, you know, why do you like it so much? Um, it, so animism as a term is a European academic term from the late 18th, early 19th century, depending. Ah. There's, there's a sort of vitalism antecedent to it, which is neither here nor there. Let's just say 19th century, mm -hmm. that is used to describe some of these lesser primitive um, cultures from a European perspective. And what I find I'm so haunted by is in particular one of the things that um, the sort of early anthropologists using this term would say is that so the Siberian shamans or the Aboriginal Australians can't tell the difference between dreams and reality. Uh, and what's so what I'm so haunted by about that is that we couldn't. Like this is um, to, to say that they are childlike in their minds because they think dreams are real um, is the opposite. It's just, and I mean, it's the complete opposite. What our theory of mind in the 19th century was just trash. Mind equals brain and it's all stuck inside a monkey skull and, and whatever's going on inside mind has absolutely no um, connection to the physical. So it's just this incredible moment in uh, human thought that couldn't be more wrong, right? It's, it's literally uh, Europeans thinking everyone else was worse than them for a thing that was wrong in them, right? Uh, and so there is a what Donna Haraway would call staying with the trouble. There is a uh, an opportunity or an invitation to um, transform or transmute that error by situating it inside that term. And I, I begin there rather than what animism describes in the 21st century, because it's important to realize, and I, I sort of say this on, it's in my upcoming book, actually, uh, when I'm talking about animism, I am situating myself in that um, European intellectual pain point rather than looking at how um, non-European cultures that also understand or experience the universe as alive um, operate and, and looking where the similarities are. And there are plenty of them because what we must never do again is kind of point at other cultures and give them a term that they, <laughs> that they describe them in a way that they wouldn't necessarily describe themselves. Yeah. So I'm, I'm writing a book called Animistic at the moment. It's almost done. And I was at the State Library in New South Wales in Sydney, and I was talking to one of the Aboriginal um, custodians or curators there about this. And he's like, because I said, I'm doing a book kind of on animism. And he's like, why? Um, and <laughs> but, and I, I was explaining all this. Like, it's it's not, because he, he thought it was like, oh, do you mean like because you sort of want to be, are you using that term for me? Is, is, was essentially his question. I'm like, no, <laughs> thank you for asking. It's I'm sitting in that, uh, the pain point that this word exists and that libraries exist and that they're organized in this way. And we had a really cool chat about how yeah. we structure what we deem to be true is part of that pain point, right? Because he said, I would not describe Aboriginal cultures as animist. And I'm like, well, here's my definition of it. He's like, no, it is that. What I'm saying is I would not describe Aboriginal cultures as animist. <laughs> we have our own words for that. And I think that's the right way of doing it, right? So yeah. Yeah. with that um, hopefully interesting preamble, um, animism inside 21st century thinking is the extension of personhood beyond the human. 
Um, and, and so there's kind of nicer ways of saying it. Like, do you, here's where I begin. Do you experience the cosmos as alive or not? And people go, of course I do. And I'm like, well, so that's interesting because you are in fact at variance with the official cosmology, if, if, that's, if that's how you experience it. Because I don't think anyone, unless you have like a, a severe head trauma, I don't think anyone experiences the universe as anything other than alive. But animism is, is explicitly the idea <laughs> that there are other persons mm -hmm. beyond human. And this comes back to that same just bunch of takes we had in the 18th century, where we decided that human and person was the same thing. And no one else anywhere or anywhere, including our own ancestors up until that point, have ever been so stupid or arrogant. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and and that's the the beginning of of how to be in this kind of uh, living cosmos is to realize that um, a tree isn't a human, but a tree is a is a person, is a being. So to to operate from an animist perspective is to be in a um, in a very crowded universe. It's very hard to be lonely um, in 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 an animist universe because it doesn't mean you think humans have or you think trees have human thoughts or or anything, but that they, you and it, you and the tree exist in the same universe at the same time. And, and it's, it's honestly as basic as that. And we even get that wrong. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a realization that humans aren't the only type of living thing in the cosmos. Mm, yeah. Um, there's something that I've been thinking about too, too. It, it, like, it seems in listening to a lot of your podcasts, you don't really like Neoplatonism very much. Um, no. But so when I look at Neoplatonism and I might be looking at it incorrectly, you know, I see a worldview that is magical where uh, humans are one being among many beings. Um, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's like animism. But so why do you, what, what do you see as the problem with Neoplatonism and what does it's a great question. And I guess, cause you guys are, you know, big on the, on the herb lore and so on. Um, we should definitely talk about it because I haven't framed it this way before. Um, <clears throat> there is a line, there is a Hemingway line, which is how did you go bankrupt slowly at first, then all at once. <laughs> now, if you look at what's wrong and I mean wrong with how 21st century Western quote unquote Western society experiences the world, we've been talking about the Cartesian enlightenment era right? Right. Um, but to get to there, we had to make a bunch of other errors um, that are sort of earlier up from it. Yeah. And one of the biggest ones, because I, I, I like Greek thought, um, but I like archaic Greek thought, like if I like the sort of early Parmenides stuff, right? Um, before the Socratic term. Neoplatonism uh, is, well, first of all, as you guys know, it's a modern academic term. Noah Plotinus <laughs> would have said he was a Platonist. So, right. Um, but the, what happened in those first few centuries as we were going through as um, the Mediterranean was kind of cleaning up what I would consider more interesting and gloriously messy cosmologies around the whole ocean into sort of one emanatory scheme. Um, Neoplatonism is the, the science of the day. It's, the, it's, it's a method of understanding we can agree on that makes all this sort of stuff work. But the trouble is, one of the things that Christianity in, in inherited from the Hellenistic world was um, this emanatory model where the idea that um, the, the further into matter you get, the further away from sanctity you are. 
So, and that's Neoplatonism. So it's this beaming Archaea radio tower at the top of, you know, of the divine source. And the closer you get to it, the less physical, the less material you are. And that's an error. That's a mistake. Um, and that is a, um, that's just wrong, right? And in fact, we're doing the Angel Magic course in the premium members area. And theologian Matthew Fox in dialogue with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake actually says that. He says the great error that Christianity inherited from the Hellenistic age, Neoplatonism, is the idea that the, the more embodied you are, the further you are from the sacred. Uh, and that's why that's one of those ideas that allows us to do things like destroy forests. Um, we, we blame the Bible for it, but actually you read the Old Testament and yes, it says some bold things about humans being masters of the earth, but that's master in a custodial sense. If you actually go back to the Hebrew of it, we got our idea that this material stuff is not, um, cannot be uh, a, a, a genuine and authentic embodiment of the divine from Neoplatonism, Right. So it's, it's still like, Plotinus has it as, like matter is still an emanation from creation, right? But it's a crap one. And in fact, your goal as a mystic is to get further and further away from matter. And that um, is not how I, I would venture either of you experience the sacred. It's certainly not how I experience it. And right. it is absolutely not the um, best way of thinking if we want to move back into a custodial relationship with the rest of the planet and stop destroying it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the one of those ideas that allowed us by the time we got to Descartes to go, well, Matt, we already devalue matter. So he can get to a point of saying, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's literally all dead. Maybe it is literally just, he, he had, actually had it as alive, but um, he didn't have it as intelligenced, right? Uh, and this, the flow down people from him were like, well, maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's literally just Dead. Dogs, trees, whatever, are just really, really, effectively, really, really well-constructed robots. Mm. Uh, and that's disastrous. So it's not that I, and it's funny, um, I wouldn't caution people away from Neoplatonism. Um, it, it's this weird situation where if you are a materialist, you are just wrong, like a materialist <laughs> naturalist. So I don't want you, I don't want people to do that. And, and that's where the main divide is. Whatever kind of jump after that, if you want to be an idealist, if you want to be a Neoplatonist, an animist, it doesn't matter. The important thing is to make the jump into a cosmos that is in, in some way alive. Now, coming back to herb law and why I have to say that on the way in, because I, I think there are better frameworks of understanding the Neoplatonism that are available to us. But historically, um, if you look at the European herbal tradition, Mm -hmm. It is couched in astrological and, and neoplatonic terms. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's an inaccurate description for a real thing, which is, again, plants are beings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if, if people, if that's where their main mode is, and I know because you have some um, herbalists that I really, really admire on the show who would identify as neoplatonists, and that's cool. Their version of neoplatonism, I don't have a problem with. Um, and I, I think they probably nod along with me. It's just, we, we do actually need to have an understanding of Neoplatonism, because that's where we kept our shit for 2000 years. That's where right. we kept yeah. our understanding. It was that, a knife, knife, um, knife handle. <laughs> correct. Correct. Uh, and, but I don't think it's the right one. Um, I don't think it's the right one for what has to happen next. So right. when, where we um, are now. yeah, like if I read um, Paracelsus or whatever, uh, I, or astrological texts, particularly the Arab ones, you will get, 
a Neoplatonic frame, and I'll just read through it. I'm there for the correspondences. I'm there for um, how how can I move into relationship with a being that is under the governance of Venus or, or Jupiter or what have you. So I'm going at it from that angle. I don't necessarily care how they're describing it, but that's so that's my beef with Neoplatonism, and it's it's a beef that also isn't. So can we go back to um, again just why? materialists and scientific materialism is so wrong. Just kind of extrapolate on that some more. It's uh, so this is really, this is the, how did you go bankrupt thing again? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at what materialism in the high empire was high imperial age. So in the 19th century, when literally the idea was that the entire cosmos was some sort of ornate machine gradually winding down like the steam engines of the day um, into an entropic end. Uh-huh. Uh, to get there, you have to, it's an epistemological change. You actually have to change what you um, are allowed to be real. And that's what Descartes did. He, he, found, mm-hmm. he found a method of epistemology that ultimately breaks the world. He's a good Catholic boy. He was honestly trying to save God um, <laughs> because at the time everyone was, so he thought the I think therefore I am mm-hmm. was a way of going, I can, I have found something that I can't possibly get behind, and and there is God at that beginning bit. And he did that because he was surrounded by, you know, early geologists and and other naturalists who were like, I don't even think, I don't even think we, I don't think there is a God. I think it's all just um, dead physical matter. And that's, it is literally a take, and it's a take that doesn't submit to evidence except the, the evidence that is only allowed to be true inside that system, which is sense data, right? So empiricism um, is the belief or the premise that nothing can exist outside of sense data, which itself is a statement that exists outside of sense data because you can't sensorily experience a whole cosmos. You're making a claim about the cosmos outside of sense data. And from that, we get the scientific method so that sense data is literally you observing an experiment. You put you, you heat water and it boils at 100 degrees and, and whatever. But that's only true because it's encountered in your, um, in your sense data. And that's physical sense data and it's nothing else. So it's not the, um, the emotional experience of, of being in a forest. It's not what happens right. on an internal basis when you are co-present with other beings. Mm. And, and, and it's, we just decided that, which is our natural mode of, of um, human experience of the cosmos, that that was fake or erroneous. It was stuck in our head and it was a delusion. Um, so, and, and that is literally <laughs> why it's wrong. Um, it is wrong in the sense of the foundational premises that are used to validate truth inside materialism are, um, are falsified and, and also self-serving. Mm-hmm. And what, I, I mean, I like, um, especially things like parapsychology, what I've been talking about for the last decade or so is that empiricism has got itself to the point where it has to admit that uh, it cannot be the sole description. We can empirically prove that empiricism can't be the sole descriptor of reality because it'll, you can demonstrate things like um, parapsychological effects. So the intending for plants, having them grow 5,000 times faster than plants that aren't uh, intended for, or germinate um, 5,000 times faster and so on. So you get to the edge of what you can observe and go, right, okay, well, that means that... Um, the human attitude that we bring to the beings under our custodianship has a demonstrable impact, but we don't know 
And we can't ever know in an empirical model the hows and whys of that. We have to barrel roll into a different cosmology, one which allows for not just the universe to be alive, but for the other beings in it to have a telos or, or a thing that they want to do with their lives. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like you get to, you can use empiricism to demonstrate that empiricism can't be the sole yardstick for how we understand things to be true. And that I think is the sort of pivot to animism. It's, it's It doesn't falsify empiricism. What it does is make it one, one voice in the choir of, of how humans um, validate true things in the cosmos. Yeah. And that's how you can be, you know, critical of science and the scientific viewpoint while not dismissing it as, you know, there are, you know, there are useful po points to it too. Yeah. And, and it, I wouldn't even reduce it to use because that gets utilitarian. So if you think of science as a song, it, it's a creation song, just like any other one. Oh. And, and it, and it frees science to just be that like um i make yeah. it's, it's a joke but it's kind of it's still true um what if you just let science and empiricism be what it always was and you don't force it to be a sole descriptor of reality uh -huh. it works better yes um so it's, so it's actually saving science right yeah. it's not it's not you can't make anything um you can't be an umbrella Stop, stop trying to be an umbrella. Yeah. Um, or a religion. And when you, you know, and so science, um, it, it is saving it by making it small. Um, and it needs that. It, it, like people who go through scientific degrees are told that um, science is effectively the sole descriptor of reality. Right. It's dumb. <laughs> it's, and, it's, uh, and, yeah. it's funny how we go from matter is bad basically to matter is all that there is. <laughs> yes, but um, it is, it's not just matter is all that there is. I agree, this is the bankrupt thing. Uh, it's also that it's dead because the other thing that you get in uh, Neoplatonism is that it is the least alive mm -hmm. of, of the various emanations. And so that's the slowly at first and then you hit the enlightenment and you get the all at once of, of the bankruptcy. Right. But I think so as well. I think it's very, we would not have only Europe could have invented what I would call materialist naturalism. It's what I do call it in the book. Uh, and it's a combination of the Neoplatonism or picking up that Hellenistic idea that um, matter is very far from sacred. And then weaving that in with a culture that is built around one book being true mm -hmm. and all the other books that exist not having that same category of truth. Uh, and then you those two ideas have weird idea sex and come up with <laughs> Descartes and the yeah. enlightenment because yeah. the, the, the two errors there is that matter is dead. And also that you, there is a sole descriptor of truth that there is like a one true thing. And then there are other stuff. And that, that's, that uh, has impacted our, uh, our expression, our science and the rest of it. I kind of joke that there is no fiction section in the Amazon. Um, there are just stories we only get the idea of fiction in a culture where there is a book, one book describes things that are true, and then there are other books, right? Right. Yeah. So we can't, this is the, the, the bankrupt thing. And, and there's, um, this is why I like animism as situating it politically. I can describe myself as an animist because I want to sit in that pain point, not because I want to solve it, but because it's, it's almost a job of permanently unspooling 
the um, premises and takes that have led Western civilization to where it is. I think that's one of the, <laughs> I think that's how we have to live. Uh, and and I get to sit in that. Well, how do we make things true in in a universe that we experience as alive? And that's crucial. The only way you get materialism is to devalue experience. Um, and and we've had to do things in the 20th century, like invent, which I like, um, philosophical disciplines like phenomenology, to recenter human experience um, because we decentered it. And, and no one else has done that. So I have uh, one of the previous guests I had on the show last year, Carol Sanford. She was largely raised by her Mohawk grandfather. And he would teach her when they were doing things like feeding the pigs or, or what have you, um, what he called inside, outside, all around. Right. So yeah, as, yeah. You there, yeah. as you were there, and that's kind of like Shwala de Lubitsch's intelligence of the heart. You find that in, in the good... Um, herbal teachings that sit with your experience when you are with this being. So there's what's going on outside, there's what's going on inside, and that makes the all around. And that is, um, that's truth validation, right? And we, we miss the inside completely um, because yeah. otherwise materialism doesn't work. Right. Uh, they can't have what you are experiencing be a kind of true thing or it breaks the, uh, it breaks the imperial framework. And the imperial framework was highly profitable for, um, for Europe for a couple of centuries. Yeah, you, you know, that monopoly needs to stay, uh, the power. Um, so we've been, this has been a great conversation. We've, we've been blown through a lot of time. Uh, we didn't, haven't even talked about permaculture at all. <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what got you into permaculture? That happened uh, a, a, a bit after you got into magic, right? Like. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a thing like magic that I'd been looking for my whole life without realizing it. So going back to my teenage years, it, in Australia, in your last couple of years of high school, in the last one, the nearby universities, I presume they still do, um, conduct uh, different departments conduct open days for, you know, come and learn this, come and learn that. And I had in my head that I wanted to be an environmental engineer um, because I thought, what turned out to be permaculture was kind of like that. And mom said, why, why would you want to be an environmental engineer? That's just doing things like building stormwater drains around business parks. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not. Um, it, like, cause in my head, I'm like, it must be reforestation. It like, it, it must be engineering with the environment. And so she patiently took me along to an environmental engineering open evening. And the first slide comes up and it's literally like, here's a stormwater drain we built around a business park. <laughs> I'm like, I see, I see. I guess, I guess the thing I want doesn't exist. Um, and so I went and did a film degree and, and carried on with my life. But in my mid-20s, I have no idea how I found it. Um, I think I must have just met someone who's been involved in it. Um, I was in New Zealand at the time. And yeah, I, I found, wait, permaculture. Stop, stop, what was this? And, and it was literally what I was looking for as a degree. And had I known that permaculture existed as a teenager, I probably would have done that rather than um, film. But it was off to the races at that point. It's like, ah, it's not that there aren't um, shortcomings in it. Uh, and, and in fact, we've been talking about a lot of them. The language that permaculture uses still comes out of the metaphor of the machine rather than the metaphor of the, the living being. And I have a whole chapter about it in, in the upcoming book. But talking about zones and systems and so on. These are all technological terms that are, that can be deployed to 
operate and agriculture in a demonstrably better way than the way we're doing now, which could not be worse. (laughs) You could not invent a worse way of of food production and agriculture than the one we currently have, particularly since World War II and NPK fertilizers and and so on. Um, It's impossible. And and using Roundup, which was initially invented to um, to clean sewer pipes, um, oh. and so it was it was to be flushed and and kill all those organisms, and then it, it started having worse effects and so on on the pipe. So they rebranded um, what was a uh, a sewer cleaning poison that ruined the like, pipes. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is harmless on plants. Let's put it on everything. Let's yeah. oh eat my it. God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when I say you couldn't invent a worse one, like you could not yeah. sit down and invent a worse method than we have. Um, but so, so permaculture, even with its shortcomings, is better than that. And I'm friends with some of the, I would say, leading intellectual lights in, in permaculture. And we have long discussions about its next step mm-hmm. is, uh, is incorporating not just, it, it's moving from a, uh, management of a system model to a custodianship model. So it's, it's, uh, it is relearning from the traditional land holders and custodians around the planet because it's actually already picked up a bunch of skills. What Bill Mollison did was effectively look around the world at which gardening and, and agronomic practices were better than the ones we used and kind of put them into this weird assemblage. But that weird assemblage is described or is contained within a metaphor of the machine. And one of the next things it's gonna do is, is, is start to change that language. Cause again, um, it matters what thoughts you think are the thoughts with. So um, famously, Bill Mollison would say, everything gardens, this is in the book. Right. Um, and, and, and he means that because if you look at a mature, again, system, we, we can't not use these words, but if you're in a, a forest edge situation where um, birds are creating micro disturbance in the ground and manuring it. And that's helping the, um, the soil microbiome or the soil biome to interact with trees, which is helping this. And so everything is gardening, everything, something's fertilizing, something's offering food to this and, and so on. Now it should be in an animus sense, every one gardens because everything still makes the chickens and the trees things, but had he said everyone gardens, he would have been misinterpreted as only referring to humans. Because again, we have that people and humans are the same thing. So this is a really, I think, a really good example of permaculture's language was very good for the first 40 years of getting people out of the um, 20th century materialist way of doing agronomy and, and agriculture and gardening. But it's still stuck in that metaphor. Right. Um, and you kind of can't change um, a, a problem with the same thinking that caused it, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's, um, I think that's a step that it goes on next. And I'm still involved in it um, down here in, in Tasmania and on a national basis and so on. It's originally from here. Um, this is where Bill and right. David invented it. So um, that's what I like and dislike about permaculture. And it's kind of the same things I like and dislike about magic. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. It seems like to me, permaculture, like it's the way that you bring these ideas into the Western culture because you you can't talk to somebody in a language they don't understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. But now that language has superseded its usefulness. And so I'm really glad that like you're part of this because in, in America, I see so many permaculture teachers who still look at things through a materialistic perspective, you know, and like 
and are actively actively dismissing the, right. the the inner experience, and that that is an effect of um, Bill's. Uh, he and you kind of get it. I mean, in the late seventies, when you're starting this mission, um, you don't want it to be derailed. His goal, his initial goal, was to have permaculture taught at a university level. Now he taught in universities, but he. He rightly figured, although it didn't happen and it doesn't need to, we certainly don't need university permission for any of this stuff because we're better at it. But well, plus yeah. the university is falling apart now. So <laughs> that's exactly right. So permaculture is going to outlast it. But right, yeah. if you had, particularly 70s and 80s, if you were trying to get it put into architecture or landscape design or whatever departments and universities around the world, one way to not do that at the time is to use language that is is more situated in the human experience of, of a living cosmos. Now, hilariously, today, that's exactly how you would do it. That is exactly how it's it would be putting regenerative agricultural practices in dialogue with the First Nations practices of whatever country you happen to be in is exactly how you would do it. So it, it's kind of funny that it's it's gone in that direction, but you get why. And, and unfortunately, one of the things that made permaculture so successful, what Bill would, would, with his life, what he did was essentially sell a two-week gardening information product in the first world, and he would use that money to fund projects in the developing world. Yeah. So it had to be sort of packaged in that way, and it, and it had to grow virally. Uh, and that meant that you do your PDC and all of a sudden you're qualified to teach other people to do a PDC, which is hilarious. But that means that there's no intervening thought that goes on between what someone's learned very often and then what they teach. And and this is where permaculture struggles to update itself is because it has a, a, a viral replication at the wrong level. Um, and, and Bill did say, it's not like, you know, he did his best, but one of the things he did say is if permaculture looks the same at the end of my life as it does at the beginning of this journey, I will have failed. Right. Um, yeah. And he did, in, by that definition, he did fail because it, it looks the same, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, the, but the spirit, the idea that you can't have spirit or religiosity or what have you in permaculture is patently wrong if you consider that Jeff Lawton, who is um, Bill's heir in, in a real sense and, and kind of permi royalty, is a practicing Muslim. Uh, so you have you have like the leading well, there's David Holmgren who isn't a practicing Muslim but is uh, does yoga and is aware of you know he has his own he and Sue have their own kind of thing going on spirit wise mm -hmm. uh, but like Jeff is an observant practicing Muslim and these are the two leading lights so um, the people who are out there teaching PDCs talking about woo um, are just not in vibration with what permaculture actually is. Yeah. Gordon, I'm super curious to ask you what your farm is like. Um, what kind of plants and animals and systems you have um, at your place? If you could just tell us a little bit about the farm. Sure. It's um, it's five acres on, the, uh, on a river, um, which we can technically drink from. Um, although um, we don't, we're putting in a rainwater um, system now. The main, the biggest plant-based change we've made in the last year is we've put in a heritage cider apple orchard they're just sticks at the moment sticks with a few <laughs> leaves on them give me a few years orchard <laughs> uh, sticks <laughs> yeah exactly and that's so i live in the huon valley which historically 
um, does apples inside her really well. Uh, and so it actually feels quite good. And in fact, my neighbor, my neighbors who live in my little hollow um, around me are long time residents. Uh, and they said it actually used to be an orchard. So it, oh. it sort of um, 70 years ago, it was an orchard and then it became sheep farm and, and, and so on. So I kind of got overgrazed sheep paddocks that I'm turning back into an orchard is a principal system. We have, done the very permy thing of adding more water catchment. So we have a seasonal creek that runs through the property that now has an additional, what we call them dams, you might call them ponds on it. And that's for irrigation of the next kind of phase, which is um, cob nuts and more olives, because we also have olives on it. Uh, and sort of in the middle of that is a growing bird system uh, at the top dam, at the top of the property. It's only a very slight fall of about nine and a half meters, but we have about 50 ducks in a pond that is arguably too small for them. I mean, they don't live in the pond, but it's more yeah. if we weren't using that water to irrigate the trees that are down from them, it would get a bit icky. But that you, I want that um, right. duck magic in the water that's going on the um, the trees, particularly as the the soil has been was not in a good way when I got it. So we're, we're sort of doing the the function stacking thing. But one of the things that I noticed over the three years I've been here is that the first year I, because um, I actually did my PDC doing the plan for this place. Cool. And so I had plans of what I wanted to do. And just being on country in a animist perspective of, well, what do the spirits here want to do? What, what is the, the spirit of the land and the river and the trees I've inherited and the rest of it want to do? And it's been a co-creative process that looks like that inside, outside, all around that, that Carol learned. And I think that's a technique that needs to be in permaculture design consults. And for the people who are good at it, it is. Um, so Dan Palmer, who wrote, who um, hosts Making Permaculture Stronger, he's a professional designer as well. And, um, and very often it kind of looks like couples therapy what <laughs> doing a permaculture design consult is actually about surfacing how people want to live. Yeah, uh, that's true. They might be describing things wrong um, to themselves for the right reasons. So in, in Australia, they're called tree changes, where you hit your 50s, you've made a bunch of money, um, not rich, but it's like, well, let's get out of the city. We've always wanted to live on 15 acres, urban fringe or what have you. And those are the kind of core permaculture design clients, right? Because they say, we want a full permaculture farm. We want orchards. We want all of this. And it's sort of, hang on. So you're heading into your 50s and you want to get into manual labor. Rather than <laughs> not. And they're like, mm, when you put it like that, it's like, okay, cool. So what is it? It's, it's surfacing. What they typically want is... Um, well, I want, it, I want like native bird habitat because I love birds. I thought you could check that off. And, and what you actually find is they want a more authentic um, human life in relation to the more than human. And they want to be closer to food production for their families. Yeah. And instead, and if you just go in and go, right, cool, you want an orchard? All right, well, we'll get the tractor and, and we'll get the, the bulldozer and we'll put in some swales and a dam's here. And all of a sudden you're custodian of 150 trees, which you will kill. Right. Um, and you won't be happy because what you think you want is a permaculture farm, but it's actually that permaculture is a way, uh, and it's correct, but permaculture is a way that can get you to the life you want. But what is that life you want? And, and very often people kind of realize, do you know what? I don't, I don't want to run an orchard. <laughs> what am I going to do? First of all, as I get older, 
you know, um, there's the the pruning at the end of the season and so on. But what am I going to do with five ton of apples? <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, what am I going to do with that every year? Not no one off five yeah. ton, right? And and, they, and all of a sudden people are like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and typically they then move into, and it doesn't mean they don't do food production, but it's like, well, how does this system match? How does the the way we move, and, and custodianship works for it. How do you move into a custodial capacity that does the things that you want and, and does the things for others? And is it involving your neighbors? Can are you going to, can you get other family who want to live this way involved and so on? But it's couples therapy or, or it's or it's surfacing desire because um, very often it what how people describe what they want is um, is kind of concealing what their actual desire is. Yeah. And it, it seems to me that like any per, real, real permaculture uh, design is about how it's about relationship. You know, it's about how yeah. the person who lives there interacts with the land there and the other people on the land, the trees and the water and everything else. And so like, how do you teach that whole, whole thing? <laughs> you know, you can't even teach that in a two week design course. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So exactly. And, and people, so you're in your fifties and you're going to move into what is a second career or third or fourth, because it's the 21st century that you know nothing about as you are supposed to be, I don't, I don't want to say winding down physical activity, but doing different physical activity that matches the age you're at. Uh, and, and, and like, these are challenges that invite permaculture to innovate because by the same token, there are people in their 20s who, at least at the moment, um, because of how our ridiculous economy is structured, are effectively permanently prevented from um, purchasing land. Right. Um, but yeah. they, they actually want to do the things like the, well, I, I want to do um, forest floor regeneration with goats, or I want to do all these kind of things. And you have tree changers who are like, I want to live this way, but I physically can't do the work. And you think, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me that there are potentially millions of people you could put in dialogue or, or relation here, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things that we're going to see come out of last year and, and, and what's about to happen yeah. is these sort of glorious and unruly combinations um, that, that are a better match for that, um, for the kind of world we want to see. Yeah. When I was studying permaculture, I think they called that social permaculture. I don't, I haven't kept up too much with what that means now, but that, that seems like such an important thing, connecting people together. I mean, and that's such a complicated thing anyway. It's like interpersonal relationships <laughs> and community. It is. Um, but, so the back of the book, I, I mean, uh, one of the things Bill wasn't good at, right, is um, is economics. And the back of the book is this <laughs> kind of like bewildering 1950s science fiction communism stacked <laughs> nonprofits. Like what, what the hell is going on? And it's probably right for the time, which is like how do you – land was cheaper and, and it, yeah. early permaculture was – um, for slackers and hippies and, and boomers at a time when you could get um, state welfare and be able to live on it. And when in fact, regional land was basically free. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of, it matched the time, but, but now it doesn't. Right. Uh, and, and so we don't have the language for it. Like things like that in social permaculture are not right. Like, so how do, what kind of, what can we learn from say, um, shamanic methods of, of healing and communicating between humans and, and around humans that 
is, is useful in this situation because it doesn't even match the legal framework, right? So what legal um, relationship would you enter into if you were in your 20s and you and the wife or husband or whatever um, are d d commit to participating in the growth of a permaculture system of, a, of tree changes or so on. We don't know what they look like yet. And, and I think that will be, that will emerge, but the, the important point is to show up and understand that we don't know what it looks like yet. It's the sort of inside outside all around. It's like this, this is a pain point. And the answer is here, but any of this sort of solutionist five-year plan diktat answers is in fact part of the problem. So I had Bayo Akumalafe on the show last yeah. year. He, he says, what if the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? Yeah. So we have a crisis of management that we, how should we respond to that? With more management? Like <laughs> do, do it harder and, and more intense? Probably not. Uh, and, and permaculture, I think, can hold space for those exciting combinations that we don't know what they're going to look like yet. Hmm. That's, that's wonderful. Mm. So uh, how are you doing on time? Or do we have a little more time? or, or do you Yeah, need go for it. Okay. Um, well, one thing I wanted to ask was I kind of look at the PDC as an initiation. You know what I mean? Like uh, it's like you get you this small group of people together, you go through this thing together and you get the, the beginning of learning this huge system and the practicing of it. But you know, it, you, you, after that, like you're on your own in a certain way. You, know, you have to you have to actually start practicing it. <laughs> but do you see permaculture kind of as a mystery school or is that am I just crazy? <laughs> no, I like it. Um, maybe not mystery school. What I do think it is is Australia's only contribution to, so far to modern philosophy. Mm, okay. um, so I would say it's a philosophical school that could sort of only have happened here and when i say here I, I honestly mean like tasmania in the 70s with someone like bill mollison in the life he led and and the the kind of genius boy genius socialist that david holmgren was that met him it's it's and again the moment and being and australia being very affordable in the 70s and all the rest of it i do think it is a um it, on its best day, it can be a philosophy. I do think it, a PDC is an initiation, especially if you do it. Uh, I did mine online because I didn't have, I, I couldn't take two weeks off at the time. Um, I think I did my, I think I was Jeff's first online course, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If you go somewhere like say Tuna Farm for two weeks to do the PDC, that's absolutely an initiation. Because um, one, it's permi royalty, it's permi holy ground. Um, but even if you're not, if you are doing it on country with someone who lives and practices it, it it's absolutely that. And and it will. I know when I talk to other people who've done PDCs who aren't in permaculture, they never they're never not seeing the world permaculturally. So yeah. It, yeah. it might just not just be their garden, but if you you kind of go into a house or if you're driving in the countryside and you look at the denuded hills and the um, and the erosion damage and so on, I can't not see it, and I can't not see what 
tree planting systems and other things you would put in to regenerate that. So you, you're always seeing permaculture in, in cities as well, especially when it's pouring rain and there's this hard surface water everywhere and you think, God damn it. <laughs> this is actually just going into the drain and taking garbage into the sea. Uh, there's no rainwater capture. There's no wicking bed systems and there's no reason why there shouldn't be. So I think it is an initiation and, and even people who aren't living on a full-time basis can't not see the world that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So going off of that, um, do you use magic personally in like a practical application on your farm and in permaculture projects? Yeah. Uh, this comes back to, is my initial definition of magic still in play? Uh -huh. Because one of the things I went to the Amazon to do um, during my ayahuasca dieta, one of the things I, at the beginning, the shaman um, says, well, what are you here for? And it's like health issues or whatever it happens to be, emotional issues. And I said, <laughs> in my Spanish translator, I had to check um, with me, but he's like, I want to be able to talk to my plants and chickens better. Mm, yeah. yeah. He said, can I just confirm this is what you said? And he said, yeah. Shaman didn't bat an eyelid and I got the right um, plant teacher for that. And so, and I already could in that intelligence of the heart right. way, but yeah. since coming back from the Amazon, it is much, much better. And I absolutely do um, sort of intending and, and ceremony. Any way that you perform ceremony is is uh, improves the growth uh, of systems. Mm. And we actually know, and, and Lynn McTaggart has some of the best research on this, um, you can, plants will in fact familiarize themselves to certain people who look after them mm -hmm. and not others. So um, the guy who invented the polygraph, um, Baxter, he... So in the mid 20th century, when he, he idly decided to see what would happen if he tested the polygraph, he literally invented by the CIA. So there's a pot plant in the CIA and on his table at his desk. And he's like, I wonder if I can, as I'm watering it, use the polygraph to detect the electro electrochemical changes of the plant's uptake of water. And he couldn't for the early version of it. So here he is with the polygraph attached to his um, jocana, I think. And... And he thought, I wonder what would happen if I burned it. Ooh. And the polygraph went wild just with his thought. Oh, right? wow. And so he's like, okay, he's, he's um, because obviously it's the 50s and, and very <laughs> sexist. His uh, secretary was a smoker and it's the 50s and he can smoke it. So he goes to her desk and gets out the matches and he holds the match up to the leaf and it goes nuts again, right? And then the next time it doesn't because he actually wasn't going to hurt the plant. And the plant worked out in his thoughts. Wow. <laughs> He's like calling your bluff. <laughs> yeah. But, and so that began a couple of years of, of research in and around the area where the plants could, um, would react differently to unfamiliar people in the office and not even in an everyday sense. Because again, what the hell was the Pentagon doing in the 50s? Someone would bring their dog in occasionally and the plants initially went a bit buzzy. The Ducrania went a bit buzzy with the dog, but not after the second or third visit. Mm. Um, and they also went wild when he made it. He made coffee wrong one day, like he had put the wrong amount in. And he, so he poured it down the sink and he saw that the polygraph went wild on the Ducana. And he realized that the sink's actually kind of, the pipes are dirty. And he did, in fact, destroyed a whole bunch of bacteria by pouring boiling water um, down wow. the sink. And so wow. they are aware of who is in their system and the moods they're in and their intentions and the damage that happens to them. Yeah. Now, I find that fascinating. But don't water your plants in a bad mood. Mm. Um, 
and if you do go away and you need someone else, to, you know, they are like children or pets uh, because they are beings. And so they might actually react differently to unfamiliar people watering them. So this is all and it's straight, literally the guy who invented the polygraph is there doing this strange plant communication with some of the people in the remote viewing programs and so on. And there is something, and I think this is why plants rather than animals are master teachers for humans. It's, it's strange to me that that's the case, right? Yeah. Um, plants want to teach us, and there is something about the being or existence of a plant that is embedded in the human psyche. Now, I think the imaginal is identical to the spirit world. Mm -hmm. So I think humans are a kind of being that is a, is this very specific instantiation of the spirit world in the physical, but things like plants are in both fairly easily, as far as I can tell, which, which would be how in my, which would be how I would describe what's going on in, uh, in Baxter's accidental plant polygraph experiments. It's not that they're reading thoughts. It's that thoughts and intentionality are aspects of the spirit world that the plant is also embedded in. Right. Uh, but it's, it's so coming back to how I farm with that knowledge, with awareness that what I'm doing is uh, it's not in a machine. Like these are, these are beings that I am yeah. a custodian of and they know me and they know my partner and, and, and what have you. And they react if I fuck up, <laughs> right? yeah. like if I kill something near them, just as if, if, you know, if a human, God forbid, was murdered near you, um, that wouldn't be pleasant. And you would react. You would react chemically and emotionally and so on. And Kind of complicated weeding, though. Yeah. It does. Um, yes. So there are praxis around when, harvest, when one should harvest things, right, as yeah. you know. And, in fact, the European cunning tradition has some really good ones yeah. about it, which is that you do sincerely thank and or apologize. Now, how I solve – solve is the wrong word – <laughs> my weeding and um, plant removal practice, if it's going into um, our food or what have you, yeah. it's a sincere thank you harvest. But I, we had to cut down some trees that the previous owner had put in because he was fighting with the neighbours and they weren't where I wanted them, but he was literally trying to outgrow their views and things. Just, you know, oh. um, rural dramas, right? Um, and yeah. so when I first got here, I had to take down a bunch of trees and... One of the things Bill was taught by his father, in fact, was that you should never sell anything off your farm that can't walk or fly off, which is to say you shouldn't remove um, plant matter from a, from a property, right? Yeah. And so I, I have them wood chipped and they were, um, some of them were eucalypt, so they had to sort of sit in a wood chip pile for 18 months so that they were no longer um, toxic to soil. And now they've actually broken down quite a bit and the geese have been living on them. So it's actually filled with like geese manure as well. And it is the most fantastic thing to be able to put down yeah. still on country amongst the new trees. So when I remove things like plants, they go into one of our compost systems, like so weeds, quote unquote weeds. Um, right. I make sure that it's there's nothing that's, no part of my custodianship isn't done with that kind of awareness that this is a being um, and, and part of its journey is, particularly for, you know, recovery species, a.k.a. weeds, they are things like mineral accumulators. So yeah. you, in fact, want them. Um, and so it's the other bit that I've kind of incorporated ceremonially is, um, and I mentioned this in the custodianship course, and it's just klaxon firing. I'm not saying 
I'm doing Aboriginal magic. I'm not saying I'm doing any, I'm not making any kind of relationship claims around that. But the way smoke ceremonies work in Aboriginal Australia is um, because the smoke is uh, part of sky country because it's sort of air and the plant is um, part of country because it, it's made of earth. Um, smoke is like a common surface between the spirit world and, and the physical world. And that's why you, um, you perform smoke ceremonies when talking to ancestors or so on. Now I have eucalypt trees that I, that um, need branches removed or that things fall down in the wind. And so when I'm burning things, cause I will burn the thistles um, and that's actually good Mars magic um, mm. and, uh, and actually good um, protective magic and so on. So you can kind of, you, I, I make sure that when I'm doing things like that, it does fold into the magic of it. And the same thing with, when I have to burn eucalypt in our um, one of our fire pits or what have you, and I, again I can't stress enough that I'm <laughs> I'm not doing Aboriginal magic, but I do use that as a moment to honour and, and pay respects to the traditional custodians of Lutarita, which is the Palawa word for Tasmania, because they've done things like this differently for thousands of years. But it, I, what am I going to do otherwise? Do you know what I mean? Like I have to right. burn the eucalypt. Yeah. yeah. So let's do it in a way that um, honors is them. intentional and aware. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's really a great reminder for all of us. I mean, I, you know, I have this worldview too, but I, you know, still catch myself like, you know, weeding angrily or, or something like that. And it's, it's just important to be thankful for these weeds when you're turning them into compost, putting them on the compost pile, turning the compost pile, you know, they're all living beings. And that's, that's a really yeah. great reminder. Um, there's one thing I'd like to, for you to talk about, if you can, uh, I listened to your last episode with freedom Cole, which is a great episode. Um, and you talked about your, uh, working with this dragon to um, help your, your farm not catch on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You think you could relate this story to our listeners? Sure. I have a whole show about it for people listening, uh, what we talk about when we talk about dragons. But okay. the first summer, um, my first summer here, so we'd been here less than a year, Tasmania had its worst bushfires since, um, famously, there's bushfires down here in 1967 where the people in Hobart, which is the capital city, had to go and stand in the ocean in the middle of the night because um, the, the whole place was on fire, right? People died and, and so on. And this was, at, at its peak, I think 2% of the, 4% of the state was on fire um, during this process. And um, where I live, the fire got, less than 200 meters from the farm. And it was an ongoing, I actually describe it in the book, an ongoing campaign of on a daily basis. Magic is very, weather magic is actually quite easy. Um, or you notice the results right away, particularly when it comes to moving things like the winds. The winds, there's a reason that we um, have winds in our um, magical cosmologies going all the way back to archaic Greece and, and the shamanism that informed it and, and so on. Um, so there's this sort of long campaign and the fires began in late January, because obviously that's summer down here. February is the driest month. So we'd had catastrophic fires that were, showed no signs of abating <laughs> as we were heading into the driest month. And the, the head of the fire service said, we need at least 35 mils of rain in one event 
to to stop this because the the deep dark secret i have a, a cousin of mine is a helicopter firefighter and the thing is um firefighting doesn't do anything and people think it you can kind of protect houses but when when fires are raging what are you going to do with a helicopter or a plane like it it, it actually they can do things like because my cousin will do this they'll, they'll spend all day saving a house with their helicopter right so bucket after bucket every every time the fire tries to make it towards the house you know bucket down but it's still surrounded by fire and then the sun goes down and they can't fly at night and it's like well I hope that's there in the morning. And it very often isn't. Oh, no. Right? So we have this, in, in those kind of situations, the, the reality is the only thing that stops fire is rain. <laughs> that's just it. That's the rules of it. So urban firefighting is different if a house catches fire. But when you're in, you know, a 54,000 hectare fire, not a lot you can do except get out of its way. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Um, we're heading into the driest month. There was 0% um, rain on the radar. And obviously I'm very good friends with um, astrologer Austin Kopic. And in kind of like traditional astrology is in the Hellenistic-ish system that uh, he works with. There was no water on the horizon. There was sort of a, a, a Wednesday and a half, well, a week and a half ago away Wednesday was the first time the moon was going to be in Pisces. And that was the closest he could get to a water election. And I'm like, my farm will be gone by then. <laughs> That's a week and a half away. <laughs> and um, he studies with freedom. And, and Freedom, bless him, this is really nice, but he was teaching across country and um, Austin had put together an initial um, Vedic um, lunar mansion, Nakshatra uh, election. Um, and he shared it to, well, showed Freedom and said, what do you think of this one? He's like, it's good, but there is in fact a, a better one. And he remembered learning it in uh, India like 15 years ago. And he remembered which of his notebooks it was on in his house. And he actually got someone, he was across country, and he got someone to go to his house and find the notebook and wow. take pictures of it to send to him so that he could give it to Austin. And with that, we got the Vasuki election. And Vasuki is one of the Naga kings. Uh, and the Nagas, and this is probably one of the reasons it worked, um, the, the Nagas were actually were ejected from their original forest home by fire. Uh, and, and now they live in a kind of like watery underworld. So they, they have beef with forest fires, oh, yeah. and I wanted that. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, that was incredible. So we did that election, and I was sort of at the, the epicenter of that here, sitting in the very position I am now. Uh, we were surprised we could actually get to the farm because the roads would open and close, as you'd expect, randomly, because um, we evacuated several times. Uh, and, yeah, we did that election. It was particularly intense, and during it I had a vision of um, – and you need to appreciate it's 0% chance of rain for the month. Like it's nothing's happening. This is early Feb. So it, it happens Wednesday. Um, the first time the moon is in Pisces, it, it happens, starts Wednesday night, but it actually happens Thursday morning and I could see it. Um, and that's in, indeed what happened. We fled back to Hobart and Wednesday night, it started to rain in Hobart. We're south of it. Um, and then Thursday morning um, it poured with rain and the fire service chief said, we need 35 mils of rain. Or was it 25? It was 25 um, to douse it. And we got 26 mils on the farm oh, that morning. Wow. And it was wow. exactly when. And the experience of being here under the rain clouds. Um, I am reasonably familiar with the appearance of spirits and as in physical manifestations and so on. Mm -hmm. There was a dragon surrounded by smaller retinue dragons um, mm -hmm. in that cloud. Like I could almost hear the wing flaps. It was mm -hmm. 
just one of the, because I've had some quite peak spirit experiences, ayahuasca in the jungle, um, et cetera. This was one of them. This was just so good. Uh, and obviously it was very good because it saved the farm. Right? <laughs> but it, it was unmistakable that the clouds somehow were a dragon. Um, wasn't shaped like a dragon, but there was a dragon in them and they were it. And it had the, the elegant, unhurried movement of a being, because I would expect it to be fast and dramatic and so on, but it was actually just a, 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 the confidence of just returning to right relation. It was a, the sense of, it's an astrological being, right? This is what happens now and nothing stops it. And so it was, the, it was like a serene confidence but the rain will fall, the fires will stop, and that's what happened. Wow. Got chills hearing about that. That's so cool. <laughs> so I guess we should probably wrap it up. And um, before we, we sign out, do you want to tell us about what you're currently working on and anything you're excited about? Um, you have a new book coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I have a, a, the weekly show and, and what have you at runesoup.com. We are towards the end of the quarterly angel magic course. But the other thing I'm launching, I think next week, depending on when this goes out, but let's just say late March, uh, we are starting or I'm starting a new show uh, on, and it's going to be a weekly build of a Lenormand card deck called Fortune's Fools. Find the details at um, Rune Soup or um, my YouTube page, which you can just find by typing in Rune Soup at uh, YouTube. And that's going to be a live creation of a Lenormand deck with people contributing um, design suggestions and discussions about what each card means over the next, well, from when that starts subsequently Ooh, 36 weeks, that's but that's going to awesome. be fun. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Looking forward to that. And yes, the book's coming out uh, sometime in H1 2021. Um, we can cool. never tell with these things, but I'm looking forward to that. That's my, shall we say my animism book. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what is it called again? Animistic. It's called Animistic. Yeah, yeah that's okay. a, what a great name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's my dot series, right? So it's Annie.mystic ah, okay. um, and star.ships. Uh-huh. Right. So I, I think I'm writing a dot trilogy, but I don't know what the third one is yet. <laughs> Not yet. Well, yeah. I don't need to yet. You'll figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, well it's, been, it's been wonderful. Gordon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gordon. No, thank you. And, and thank you for the, for the great questions. Absolutely. Oh, yeah.